the Triathlon Show 404. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview James Moran. James is the head of nutrition at the Uno X Pro Cycling Team and we discuss everything related to nutrition within a Pro Tour Cycling Team today and of course we also discuss things like how does this apply or how does this not apply to amateur athletes. But before we get into the interview I have the pleasure to announce that our 2024 training camp in Mallorca is open for registration. By the time that you hear this episode I might have recorded and published a mini episode just about announcing the camp with a bit more details so you you can look for that episode on the that triathlon show feed in whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast or you can go directly to scientifictriathlon.com where you can find all the information about the camp uh, under the training camps menu the dates of the camp are from the 13th to the 20th of april so it is a bit later than we have done it in previous years which means uh, better weather security and uh, for the rest of the details besides besides the dates do check out that web page or email me directly on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and i will put a direct link to the web page in the episode description so you can just click through uh, in your app and uh, read all about the 2024 mallorca training camp and thank you to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools education and a patented sweat test you can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for carbohydrate sodium and fluid intake and you can book a free 20 minute video call station to chat through your plan with the athlete support team i have used their entire range of products for a long long time and i think that they are absolutely brilliant and uh, you can get 15 percent off your first order by using the code tts23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to form the form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including splits pace stroke rate and heart rate form have recently launched a big and important update which is an integration with training peaks so that workouts written in training peaks can automatically sync to the form app and the goggles this works even with swims that are just in written form they don't have to be built in the workout builder in training peaks and that makes life super easy for you or for your coach you can just load the workout on your goggles and then you will be guided through it step by step you can get 15 percent off the goggles with the code tts15 on formswim.com forward slash tts now without any further ado here's the interview with james moran Welcome to the Triathlon Show, James. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for the invitation to uh, have a chat. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, can we start with an introduction? Tell us more about who you are. Yeah, so my name's James Moran. I'm um, from the UK, from uh, Manchester. Um, I'm a performance nutritionist. I'm registered dietitian. Um, my current role is working as head of nutrition with UNOX Pro Cycling Team. Um, before this role, I, I worked with um, Ineos Grenadiers cycling team for a few years, uh, British cycling. I was in the English Institute of Sport for a while. And then before that, I was a clinical dietitian. So I worked in the, the healthcare space in the UK. So working in hospitals in different conditions, um, mostly with, with people with type 1 diabetes was my kind of specialist area when I was a, a clinical dietitian. And the past few years, I've worked mostly with endurance sports and 
the past four years, mostly with road cycling, a little bit with, with mountain bike and road, but mostly road cycling this past few years. Mm. Well, uh, that's interesting that you started as a clinical dietitian. So how does it work education-wise? I, I assume that all dietitians, whether it's related to uh, clinical uh, dietetics or uh, endurance sports or, or sports dietetics, it's the same basic education, but do you have different focus within that education or how, how does it work? Yeah, it's completely different, actually. So the, the term nutritionist um isn't like a protected title so anybody can call themselves a nutritionist and, and and people commonly do um the standards now in the uk we have the sport and exercise nutritionist register and they're trying to standardize um the training and education um a level of, of sports nutritionists in the uk um but it's still not a protected or regulated title And a dietitian is a, a protected title in, in the UK and Australia and a few other countries, like a physiotherapist. Um, so you have to have done um, a set amount of clinical hours of, of practice where you supervised and monitored and trained. Um, and then you work usually for one or two years in in clinical like, hospital settings. Um, so it's very different, very different training and background. Um, and then I what I did was I worked in in the clinical space for a long time and then I did a a master's kind of later on in my career in sports nutrition to allow me to to get some of the the skills and knowledge that was maybe missing from the from the sports space but yeah they're, they're quite different how they're how they're trained and approached yeah all right was that something that you were always planning on doing to at some point go into uh sports nutrition and the uh and take that master's degree or or did it come up later No, it was always the intention. I always knew I wanted to work in sport. I originally, when I was 17, 18, thought and I, I wanted to be a physiotherapist. That was my kind. I knew I wanted to be like an athlete support personnel. Um, I knew I was never going to be gifted enough to be an athlete. Um, I grew up playing team sports, football, rugby, um, not really endurance sports. And then when I was 18, I uh, did a sports science degree. So from 18 to 21, sport and exercise science degree. And at that time, there wasn't really a clear pathway to them becoming a sports nutritionist. This was in the early 2000s. So the, it was still a kind of new new profession um, as such. So at that time, I decided to kind of go down the, the clinical route and hopefully pick up bits of work and experience in, in sports nutrition. Um, and then that, that didn't really happen. I kind of managed to get a good career in the health system helped out some friends and you know semi-professional athletes and then it was a chance meeting at a conference i was speaking about type 1 diabetes and exercise and james morton uh, professor james morton who was working at team sky at the time was also presenting at this conference and we got talking and i kind of told him where i was up to in my career and it's him that kind of encouraged me to to go and study a master's with with him and graham close at liverpool john moore's um so yeah that was that and i kind of went went all in decided that i was gonna fully fully invest and live like a student for a year and live off my wife's salary with the main aim of becoming a sports nutritionist at the end of it um so it's a kind of quite a long journey to to get to where i am today and um, to working in sports nutrition mm. yeah and uh if we uh yeah discuss what you're doing today with uh, uno x what what are your roles and responsibilities specifically Yeah, so my title is is head of nutrition, and the short answer is I oversee 
you know everything to do with with what the riders eat and drink um at home and the training on training camps and on races and what that means in practical terms is um on races we have a team of of carers um we have a t- um a team of performance chefs and a kitchen truck so i'm kind of responsible for ensuring the quality and the structures of, of the things that they're doing and um, with, with providing food for the riders in, in race situations. We have um, a women's team nutritionist, Hannah Mayo. So I kind of oversee her a little bit. She's responsible for our women's team, but I kind of, yeah, help her out um, in the background. And then we have a development team as well, which we focus mostly on education for those guys in the, in the development team, nutrition education. Um, yeah, so a lot of working with nutrition partners. We're, we're partnered with Morton, um, so we do a lot of work with them with product development and new things like that. Um, and then working with other companies that we we um, we use as well. Um, yeah, so yeah, everything to do with nutrition, food, drink, and um, performance, really. What would you say, what is the one, the most challenging part of your job? And two, what is the most interesting or fun part the part that you enjoy the most the most challenging part and when i speak to colleagues of mine that work in football for example is this this week we have the tour of denmark and arctic race of norway plus um an under 23 some under 23 races going on so essentially i need to be across three races in three different countries with three different lineups with three different sets of staff and make sure that the riders, the staff are all clear on what they need to do with, um, yeah, with, with feeding, um, the weather conditions, um, what the riders need to do with their individual nutrition each day, um, what nutrition products needs to be in each race for each, for each group of riders. So it's the logistics and almost having to split yourself in, in three places at one time is probably the most, most challenging. We, we have got some systems in place that help with that and we're trying to build more and more systems so it's it's more more automated and less less um manual input and manual labor on my part to make sure that all of those things are done um, so that's probably the most challenging and probably the most frustrating part of my job hopefully in time we'll be able to bring on more more nutrition staff as well into into the team to help me a little bit with some of that stuff um, and then the fun, the fun part for me is the 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 big the big races like the Tour de France, where it's a twenty one day puzzle, as well as the the months leading up to that race of of you know your eight riders making sure that they're healthy, that their body composition's been optimized, that they've had all the support they need around gut health, around competing at altitude, competing in the heat, and then in that tour de france where each day is slightly different each day has different demands from weather altitude meters distance um all of those things together that's the the fun part for me the big the big challenge that that, um, i really enjoy are are you present there are you with the team at those big races like the tour yeah yeah so for the tour that, that we've just done i was there for the full month so it's a it's a long time away from from the family but it's the same same for everybody on on that um but I think it's important because a lot of what I do with the team around the the data that I get, I can capture a lot of that from home and remotely. But I think sometimes you miss the context of 
of the data. You know, if you're just get looking at their kind of uh, the, the power meter and the heart rate and all the other things and the nutrition data, but you're not actually speaking with the riders and observing the riders and speaking with the the, the race directors to understand, no, actually this is going to be the demands tomorrow and these are going to be the tactics. I think you can miss that extra layer of, of input. And as well, being on those races, it just enables me to make sure that the riders are, are getting exactly what we've prescribed nutritionally when they need it. So a big part of my role in the last Tour de France was I was on the the, the bus after the stage to to the finish. And a big, big part of that was to make sure that the recovery protocols that we prescribed were followed because commonly food and the, re the recovery products are left there. But from my experience, when riders are fatigued, stressed, they might not take all of the recovery food or on a busy bus where the staff come in and going and the bus is moving, riders might just miss parts of that recovery. So a big focus for me was in those first four hours after the races was making sure that each of the units of recovery that we were prescribing, that, that, that they were getting. And if they were struggling, then I could find alternatives. I think that helped keep the riders healthy and recovering, covering each day. I think it would have been easy to overlook that if I wasn't there perhaps. Mm, yeah. So um, let's go into an overview of how you think about nutrition within the context of pro cycling uh, for racing, training and day to day. So maybe we start with uh, racing. Just give us an overview of, of yeah what you think is important there. Yeah, for me, the racing is the kind of easier, easier part um, of because, you know, I just think it's the riders start to have routines and they know how to, to, to adjust things here and there. Um, there's everything's done for them. We have a share, we have, um, the carers, the foods provided. So I, I think a lot of the racing stuff generally is, is probably easier than, than training, but we always start off with, with energy balance. So we would predict the, the energy demands of, of that individual stage. And then we would start with a nutrition plan based on those assumptions of the the um, energy demands of that of that stage and the individual rider. And then we would work backwards and devise a plan based on that. And then after the after the stage, if if the energy demands have been significantly higher or lower, then we would adjust for the rest of the day to make sure that they were in in energy balance for for those days. So we all would all would start off on a spreadsheet or you know on a, as a numbers based exercise first of all um riders have individual preferences um in races like what products they like what what drink combinations what gel combinations whether they prefer more solids whether they, they prefer more semi-solids so i would always give like an overview of recommendations for a particular stage and then allow the rider to customize okay if i need to hit this amount of carbohydrates per hour these are the the foods that i think i would like to use for that and then we can have a conversation around that with the breakfast um we always give a recommendation based on the energy demands for that day and breakfast typically on a race consists of rice um overnight oats um smoothies breads um fruit and then eggs and yogurt for protein so it's a standard kind of breakfast that they would have at home um just the the, the timing and the um volume might differ a little bit um some some riders and for some stages how big how big how big how big would the bre 
So, sorry, how big would the breakfast be roughly? What, what are you shooting for, for uh, calorie intake and carbohydrate intake? Yes, we, we tend to base it off grams per kilogram of carbohydrate. So a, a standard breakfast around racing within our team is usually around two, two grams per kilo of, of carbohydrate. Um, for a bigger day, we would just add add an extra unit or two onto that. So we'd add some extra pancakes or some banana bread or extra a few extra glasses of smoothie onto that. But the base breakfast tends to they tend to be pretty consistent with what they like to eat most days. For some of you know, if we were doing a big mountain block, or if we were trying to, yeah, if we were being conscious about um, body mass, um, we would possibly do like more low low fiber low residue options um you know more rice less less kind of high fiber foods less oats and things like that but again you can't do that every day for 21 days because you either crack mentally or riders end up um constipated so we try and periodize uh, fiber intakes around racing so that we know when it's flatter days or days when the riders aren't going to need to fuel in an extreme amount then we try and encourage them to get more fiber more fruits more vegetables whereas a day that's going to be really intensive or with lots of a big mountain day then it makes sense to prioritize the amount of carbohydrate um of the of the meal rather than you know add, adding bits of fiber so we try and periodize the fiber as well as everything else yeah. and then in the race like i said that will that will depend on on the demands of the race i will give them a guide based on what how we think the stage will go but we always say to fuel for the kind of worst case scenario it's pointless really under fueling and then crosswinds come and then somebody's caught out because they've, they've really under fueled so it's it's a bit of a balance um and again it's individual some riders don't like to 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 fuel like crazy amounts and it's not something we we push for every stage and every race and when i say crazy amounts you know the 120 130 140 grams of carbohydrate per hour the approach that we would typically use is probably similar to tim podligar that you've had had on the show before and i think we share quite a lot of similar philosophies on that we would maybe start off in the first few or few hours of a stage around 80 grams per hour and progressively increase um through the stage typically the average intakes would be around 80 to 100 grams per hour for, for most guys for most stages mm. and then after the stage we we have quite a strict strict recovery protocol to try and maximize uh, glycogen resynthesis and recovery after a stage so in the first three to four hours we we try and hit around three grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body mass for a standard stage and that would typically be um things like haribo and candy um and as they cross the finish line um some riders will have fanta if, if they like it and, and and then they'll get back to the bus they will have um, a recovery shake with protein and dual source carbohydrate um sometimes more haribo depending on how demanding the stage has been they'll have a shower and then they'll have a a solid meal um, usually a rice or pasta based dish which has been weighed out for their um, body mass and energy expenditure and then if it's been a, a crazy hard stage and there's another hard stage to follow we'll add on extra smoothies and extra haribo or extra cake which have all been portioned and calculated so it sounds quite random how i describe that to you but when i have eight riders on a bus i know exactly 
how many pieces of cake they need to have to hit their targets are, how much smoothie, 250 mil smoothie, the, the Haribo is portioned out so we can then ensure, okay, we've hit these targets that we're aiming for. And then they get back to the hotel, they'll have a massage, some some treatment, and then they sit down for dinner. And in that time from finishing the stage to dinner, I would then give them a, a plan for what they need to have for dinner, um, which would usually center around the carbohydrate portions and amounts that they need for, for dinner. The meals that we cook are mostly fairly low fat anyway, and the, the protein portions are, are usually controlled in a way that we don't want riders to eat excessive amount of protein. So then all that's left then is to understand how much rice, pasta, noodles, bread, dessert, um, juice, and things like that they need to have with their with their dinner so that they're ready, ready for the next day. So that's the kind of how we approach it. Some riders will record every single thing they eat in a race. So I'm, I'm giving them constant feedback and adjusting. Other riders, they will get a plan and they will kind of let me know if they've gone over or under that plan other riders will get a plan and i don't really hear much back um other than other than they've had a plan and they've given me a thumbs up so we try and individualize it because you know some riders find it highly stressful to be recording every everything that they're eating and i think for riders that maybe it tends to be the riders that are climbers or that weight is more of a, a component of their performance they tend to be a bit more wanting more detail in that in that kind of area so that they're kind of sure that they're getting enough but not too much and not too little when when you speak about protein what would you say is uh, the grams per kilogram of protein that they're getting in during a stage race like the tour yeah i think if you're not careful it can go go very high we would have it around two to 2.5 grams per kilo which is yeah it's higher than what we'd see in a lot of the literature. But I think the thing that I find is just the sheer volume of food that the riders are eating, you know, the amounts of pasta and bread that they're eating, you, you're getting a lot of protein just from those foods alone, you know. And then if you're having 150 grams of chicken or fish, um, a skier yogurt here and there, it can quick it can quickly run out of run out of control. And it's all it's all calories at the end of the day. So the way I approach it is we have a, a budget of, of energy, of calories, and I want to maximize the amount of carbohydrate that's in that in that budget. Um, protein and fat should usually take care of themselves if, if we're careful. But I have seen riders in the past way over-consuming protein and probably then either going over their energy balance and gaining weight or not quite eating enough carbohydrate and being slightly under their energy balance and then under-fueling. So it's something we, we focus on a lot is getting your carbohydrates exactly where they need to be, then the protein, and then then the fat. And when you talk about starting from the energy balance side of things, is that do you then uh, do you estimate and then confirm the energy requirements for the day based on is the average power data for the stage enough to get an, yeah, an adequate estimate of, of the calories burned throughout the race? And, then, and, and do you add that to some yeah, resting metabolic rate uh, or how does that work yeah exactly it's exactly that and then obviously that's quite a crude way of approaching it but it's it's just a way of starting off with with a figure with 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 a value and then if somebody's after the stage the the energy prediction can be quite close but somebody's gone really really deep in the final or somebody has been 
in the breakaway all day. So then the energy is, is quite a lot higher. So then we always have to adjust based on that. Um, because for example, you, you can deplete quite a lot of glycogen by riding really hard for a short space of time. You can also deplete glycogen riding for six hours. The, the energy expenditure of those two durations would be quite different, but the amount of carbohydrate that's been used would be would be high. So we have to take that into account, like the relative intensity as well for for that. Um, so it's it's always somewhere somewhere to start, but I'm very mindful of you can't rely a hundred percent on on data like that. You have to speak to the riders as well and see how they felt, see how they fueled in the race, understand the objectives of the next day as well. So it it just starts as a instead of having a really really wide you know range of what the the number could be it just brings us a bit closer and then we re- we refine after the after the stage and um, that's one and, of the uh, one, sorry one of the the problems i have with like apps and um softwares that do a lot of this you the, the very black box so they kind of it's very much numbers in numbers out eat this very structured intake and i think without a nutritionist or somebody who understands that data and understands the the rider or the athlete then you, you can be quite quite a lot out because we know that food food can vary a lot you know depending on what database is used you know pasta can can range um the power data might be be off you know depending on how accurate the power meter is um so it's all of those things heat altitude so you have to be able to make adjustments here and there for all of those things along the way rather than just using oh the spreadsheet tells me 3500 kilojoules well that's exactly how much i'm going to feed them and not not a calorie or a gram more or less i think it can be quite dangerous if you if you use that approach too much yeah no 100 uh in a hypothetical scenario where the riders were left to their own devices and they had they had access to to all of the food uh, that they could imagine but in a in a race like the tour but you weren't there and nobody else was there to to guide them and help them with how to eat do you think that uh they would get it mostly right or would there be a tendency to to underfuel or overfuel or not getting enough carbs or what what would happen that's that's a good question and i think one of the approaches we do like i said at the outset because there's only me in the men's pro team and we we might have three races going on at all times, a lot of the times, a lot of the races, there's not a nutritionist there. And I quite like that sometimes they're left to almost calibrate themselves and sense check, okay, James isn't here, but yeah, I think this is all right. And to keep that, they're almost like a rider, you know, if their power meter breaks, it, it, they should still be able to have an understanding of, of yeah, what's what. I think the big concern in the Tour de France is just the fatigue, which typically affects people's appetite negatively. They start to undereat, you know, after after day 10, 11. They start to just get emotionally drained. They start to get bored of, of eating food. And I think not having me there to just almost tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, you've not eaten enough there. Let's get, you know, what's the problem and get get a bit more. I think over three weeks, that gap can widen and you see riders then just not recovering as well and not not quite eating enough i would i would suspect rather than the opposite yeah that's interesting uh so maybe we move on to uh fueling the training then the the training session specifically and then we after that we tackle the the day-to-day nutrition or if you want to tackle them simultaneously then that's also uh fine i think yeah i think tackle them together because you know 
if riders, riders aren't racing, they're either training or they're recovering. So it's kind of one one feeds into the other. Um, and and again, we would start with with energy balance. But I try not to be overly prescriptive with with riders when they're in the home setting, unless we're working on something for a focused period. Because I have thirty riders in the in the men's pro team, and I think trying to be prescriptive with what exactly what they should eat each day is is just not not possible or necessary um, whereas if a rider was working on optimizing body composition or we were doing a period of of monitoring and educating then that's that's slightly different my approach is to do these short interventions with riders give them skills give them understanding let them know the framework to operate in and then step back and let them you know work with their nutrition at home and then use me as a an almost a consultant like a like a coach to to check in and say okay i've i've done this what do you think and that that it works a bit more organically that way um a lot of what we focus on is is kind of giving them um the skills at home to be able to cook and plan meals and all of the practical things that's quite hard to quantify and easy to overlook um, but it's something that we we work a lot on with the riders, making sure that the the kind of nutrition quality is good as well at home, so that they're eating lots of fruits and vegetables in the home setting. Because when it comes to racing, the races we have a chef, we can we can control uh, fruits and vegetables, making sure they're getting good quality at the right times. Whereas if they're staying in a hotel where we haven't got the chef, the the menu is quite often lacking in in nutrients so when they're at home we, we have a big push on something called eat the rainbow where we, where we try and encourage them to get as many different colors into the diet as possible um typically i've found working with norwegian athletes or norwegian cyclists that they don't have the same um culture of of fruit and vegetable intakes as maybe working with athletes from the mediterranean are athletes that live in in warmer environments and i guess that's just historical over time i mean you might be able to um, share similar insights from from finland but i guess you know tropical fruits and fruits and vegetables are probably expensive um or if they're not in season that they're maybe not as available so we do a lot of things around frozen vegetables um frozen fruit trying to incorporate those into the diet as well um yeah in terms of like the, the the training side of things again some of the energy demands of training can actually be higher than than some of the stages that they're racing so it's thinking about what's the demands of that day in terms of calories carbohydrate and um, how hard the session going to be um and getting the rider rider to come up with their own nutrition plan which then i would um look over and tweak as they need to for for concentrated blocks like altitude camps or like i said if we're working with a rider that's trying to optimize something for a particular race then it would be a much more detailed uh, one-to-one approach um but typically when, when i joined the team the big things that i was seeing with with the, the you know x riders was they were, they were eating way too little carbohydrate on hard training days they were using training to almost help with weight management but under fueling training and then I was seeing a lot of riders overeating off the bike because they were so so hungry and depleted all the time. Um, and I was seeing massive intakes of, of protein and, and meat when I first joined the team. I, I was kind of quite shocked about how how much meat um, 
and protein that riders were ingesting compared to how much carbohydrate they they were eating and that's something we've we've slowly changed bit by bit but i can remember being being sat on my first training camp with them and i was just staggered about how much how much meat riders were coming back from from the buffet with and i knew there was a five-hour ride the next day with with intervals and riders were eating next to no carbohydrate and it was just it kind of blew my mind a little bit so bit by bit we've 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 worked a lot lot on that with with riders now and it's become almost like a joke when riders reflect back on how their eating patterns in in the past do you have any recollection of like data where they're having four or five grams per kilo body weight carbohydrates back then or and now they're up to eight to ten ten to twelve for those harder training days training camps or yeah exactly exactly yeah and i've i have riders now who will a rider last week who was he was around 14 grams per kilogram of carbohydrate on a training day and he was he was almost laughing at it he said you know he would have been scared to eat that much a few years ago but he now knows how how better his training is how much you know he's he's improving how much more stable his weight is as well we don't see those massive weight fluctuations because riders are under fueling and then as soon as their body you know is exposed to high carbohydrate intakes that they just kind of swell up and retain all of this this glycogen and fluid whereas we, we see much less big fluctuations now in weight and riders are much more stable and consistent day to day um which is good which is kind of my my main aim as, as nutritionist with the team to support their training consistency um so that they're able to complete the work that the coaches are prescribing you know that they're able to get through a training block that they're not having one really good day where the numbers are great and then three days where where they, where they can't do the same again it's about the consistency with training and i'm a big big advocate of training consistency should you know be supported by nutrition consistency and would the fueling within the sessions be similar to what you described for the races maybe starting at still at consuming car- carbohydrates but doing a bit more later in the in a, in a longer session like you said but averaging out to 80 to 100 more or less or is there any difference between the training fueling and racing if, if we're looking at uh, at least a harder training day yeah if if it's a harder training day um it, it's it's different from a logistics point of view um if you think in a race we have a car that's behind them all the time giving them giving them extra drinks we have people by the roadside giving them extra drinks so that side of things can be be a bit more tricky to manage but for a highly demanding session yes we would still be you know looking looking somewhere around 80 to 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour but probably not for the full session probably around the the leading into and the block of work you know if they're doing um race-like intervals but then the the first hour and maybe even the last hour of the session where they're just doing easy riding then we will scale the fueling right back in those kind of sessions and for for general endurance riding as well we'll we'll drop the carbohydrate intakes quite a bit lower than that in those sessions because we're still wanting to you know every session doesn't need to be like a super extreme carbohydrate session because that's that's not demanded by that session so it's usually like um a more moderate approach on those kind of sessions we we typically don't do kind of fasted fasted training and i do believe that this is yeah gone a lot out of fashion in in the pro peloton as well i think some riders may may do it here and there but especially with with our riders being younger um i think riders get much more bang for the buck from being able to complete the work you know each day and layering on these training sessions instead of doing a 
a low carbohydrate or a low glycogen session, having a higher rate of fat oxidation from that session, but then struggling to recover for the next few days. Um, maybe with riders when they're older and in the thirties and, you know, they've got, a, they've maximized all of those other things. There might be merit in the off season or early season to be doing some of those sessions. But with that, with our riders, my big aim is to help them cope with the demands of training and to stay healthy. So we don't really do much low, low carb training, if any, um, with our guys. Yeah. So when you talk about more moderate carbohydrate intakes in those endurance, regular endurance rides, what what is that in grams per hour, roughly? Yeah, it'd be be more like between thirty to sixty grams of carbohydrate per hour on some of those sessions, you know. And again, we will we will adjust that. So if we if we're on a training camp in Spain, a session might be prescribed as you know zone one, zone two, but you're in a group of ten guys, each feeling a bit fresh people start pushing the pace and the, the session actually becomes a zone three ride. So we always kind of would say in those kind of rate rides, yeah, maybe more like a, a 60 grams per hour because it's actually different to what's prescribed. If someone's training alone with like one or two of their teammates at home and it's a real controlled session, then that might be more like 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Um, yeah. So they would, they would adjust it themselves. I like give them framework and guides to work within and then they adjust that based on what they're trying to achieve the one thing we try not to do though is use training to as a as a means of of losing weight like the old-fashioned you know just not eating on rides and hoping that 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 creates a, a bigger calorie deficit um i think just by the amount of work these guys are doing it's easy to create a calorie deficit and um, just be, be by being organized and well planned without coming back from each training session seeing stars and then usually what what happens is they'll hold off and hold off but then at some point they will they will break and they will they will eat way way too much and the wrong things and and weight can be really up and down then so we we try and be more kind of moderate and in the middle and consistent yeah yeah uh so one thing we talked about a bit over email is putting a big focus on on using nutrition as a way to optimize health uh and uh, and be a supportive training and you've touched on several things already with eating the rainbow and so on and uh, consistency within nutrition but is, is there anything else that you would like to talk about or mention as uh, in yeah in regard to nutrition having this role yeah i mean i present i can send you the the it's like almost like a pyramid that we use within our coaches and, and riders and at the it's a upside down pyramid <laughs> but the, the 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 headline is you know we work on nutrition to support training consistency so are they getting enough total calories and carbohydrate to support training consistency? And we find that then that feeds in quite well to nutrition to support health. You know, if they're able to meet their energy demands, if they've got good carbohydrate availability, then that that can go a big way to to supporting health. You know, if if they're having enough fuel to support their immune system and they're having enough fuel to support their training, then we, we can typically see training progression and the rider you know is less prone to picking up upper respiratory tract infections and you know just small illnesses here and there the next layer after that then we look at optimizing race nutrition so it's getting those two in place first and then we would look at some of the things we've said about race fueling training the gut um all those kind of things and then what we would come after if once those three are kind of in line and somebody's experienced and stable and and ticking the boxes with that 
that's when we might start to look at, at optimizing body composition for some individuals. The reason I wanted to outline that was in some teams, in some organization, it would start maybe the opposite. It's like, oh, this, this rider's weight is this and it should be this. It should be, you know, five kilos lower because we think if they can be there, their power to mass will be this and blah, blah, blah. Whereas we come at it differently. It's it's about building the engine, making them robust, making them healthy, making them consistent and able to execute what they need to with their nutrition in race. Then we would we would look at body composition optimization. So with the young development riders, we don't do any monitoring of body composition. And then when riders join our, our team as like a first year professional, we just capture body composition at, throughout the season but not to do anything with it just to see what their seasonal variation is starting to work with the rider and the coach to see long term we think this rider may benefit from being at this kind of weight but understanding that if a rider is 20 or 21 they've still got quite a long way to go in terms of maturation um how their body composition is distributed um and things like that so it's 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 done much more holistically rather than getting a 20 year old guy and saying oh He's 62 kilos now, but if we could get him to 58 kilos, he'll be a great rider. And in the in the short term, that might be true, but in the long term, that can do a lot of damage and create a lot of the rider starts to become overly focused on on weight and body composition. And you know, weight is a key factor in cycling, but it's not the only factor. And that's the thing we we always come back to um, when we're talking about health. If we can get the rider healthy and consistent, then the other things start to fall in place and we can refine later on. Yeah, no, that's a nice uh, segue to one thing that I wanted to talk about as well, which was in, um, I think, in Velo uh, before the tour. It was a a case study about one of your riders, uh, Jonas Abrahamsen, who had over time, I can't remember how many years, but I think this was um, several years, but he had gained something like 20, 20 kilos from his junior or very early senior or under 23 days to to now and uh, and improved his performance significantly by 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 consciously putting on weight. So um, I, I know that this is maybe not something that you can go into too much detail on that specific case study, but if there's something you want to say about that, then feel free. But just in general, can you talk about the concept of uh, gaining weight as a means to improve cycling performance overall? Yeah. Yeah, so I, yeah, I obviously can't go into too much detail about Jonas, but I can speak a little bit because he's spoken a lot to the media, and there's been there's been a lot of articles that that he shared. But when I first joined Uno X, Jonas was actually the very first rider I did a one to one consultation with, and we did the Tour de France together um, this summer. And it was you know when we sat down, we we reflected on you know his journey this past past few years, and when when I joined the team, he was transitioning he'd he'd been trying to be a climber and he'd he'd, by his own admission been really really weight focused um and you know had some good days but then some days where he wasn't able to deliver what what the coaches thought he was capable of um and when i joined the team he'd already gained um some weight and then we sat down and he kind of said you know talked talked to me a little bit about this and said how he thinks he could be more explosive as a rider and he'd like my support to maybe help help to gain some weight and make him make him stronger um and then fast forward to the Tour de France 2023 and he's he was you know I think 10 
10 or 12 kilograms heavier than that conversation we had in December 2019. <laughs> um, so that's that's a significant amount. But if you just look at if he'd have carried on that path of, of being overly weight focused, um, he probably wouldn't be a professional cyclist now. If he was a professional cyclist, he, he wouldn't have ridden the Tour de France this year. Whereas now he's transitioned into being one of our strong um you know, sprint lead out guys, breakaway guys, a classics guy. And it was almost like he was trying to make himself into a kind of rider that didn't suit his natural natural attributes. Um, and now he's a real, real powerful, strong guy. Um, and seeing him in the Tour de France every morning at breakfast, coming into the breakfast room, cracking jokes and, you know, laughing and in the breakaway in the lots of stages and finished third on a, on a long, hard breakaway stage. So, yeah, for him it was it was the, the the right thing to do, and I think it just comes back to riders will often look at um, young riders will often look at the guys who win the Tour de France, um, and you know to be a GC rider in the Tour de France, weight is a is a factor in in performance. The the ability to you know climb high mountain passes, weight plays a part in that power to, to weight ratio does. But a lot of these young riders will will never be a GC rider in the Tour de France. Um, they might actually not be a GC rider in any any race. And then you start to dig down into what kind of rider are you? What are your attributes? What does your coach see for you? What do you see for you? And then then you can start to dig down into what what are you like physically. Um, when I first joined Uno X, having worked with different cyclists and different cycling teams. I was struck by just how athletic all of the riders were. It felt like I was working with a team of athletes rather than a team of um, cyclists. And I think, you know, the the riders all do cross-country skiing and hiking and they're, they're just more active. So because of that, their physiques are slightly different. They're, you know, stronger, um, more rounded as athletes. So, and some of the riders that that successful for their their role as a as a sprinter or a, a hardy kind of rider so it's about trying to understand the kind of rider and how far how much does body composition and weight play a part in their success and to what how much should it be emphasized or not um you know if somebody is an out and out climber and they're targeting these long climbs then obviously we need to optimize that it becomes more important than for somebody who's more important to perform over flat or rolling terrain um, so it's just about individualizing body composition for, for different riders, not having squad norms. You need to be this sum of eight skin folds or you need to be that. It's about, okay, what's your baseline? What's your genetics like? What are your family like? What what kind of rider are you? What age are you? You know, the, the body composition you are now might be fine for now, but in five years it could be it could be different. Um we have got some some riders who've just come into the protein this year and we are working on actually gaining weight because they've probably underfueled as a junior and under 23 because of this perception they need to be lighter or, or skinnier and then they've probably suppressed a lot of the explosivity and um, you know sprint capabilities that they might have um, so it's quite an exciting journey when you're working with these young guys who are 20 to 23 to actually say no let's just see Let's just optimize your nutrition and see where your body composition naturally lands. And then we can maybe refine it one way or another, depending on coach, you, your health and all those kind of things. 
Do I remember right from reading that one of those articles as well about Jonas that he he actually got taller uh, when he started working on putting on putting on weight in his early twenties, maybe or very late. Yeah, teens? yeah, no, he was in his early twenties. Um, yeah, yeah, that happened. And yeah, my my take on that is, you know, you've probably had people on speaking about low energy availability and and you know, reds and things like that. I think in sometimes people people can almost suppress a lot of the the kind of um, hormones around around puberty and the growth hormone and testosterone and then with 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 good nutrition and appropriate load managing then the body almost kicks back it's almost like a spring that's been kind of squeezed squeezed for a long time and then when it's allowed to ex- expand and be released it, it it kicks back quite a lot I think a lot of athletes and riders aren't always lucky and and when they realize that oh actually i've been training too hard and not eating enough it's usually when there's a health issue and the health issue is usually you know a bone issue or a stress fracture or um, with female athletes issues with the menstrual cycle or fertility and quite often it can be can be too late and the damage can can have been done by there so that's why we work a lot with our younger guys to to emphasize these these things yeah it's something i've heard about at least one world-class triathlete it's not in the public domain or anything but that had the same thing with at one point in his late teens like or early 20s starting to grow again after having stopped growing in in his teens at some point which yeah at a later point than you would expect just based on changes in nutrition uh, that happened at that point and probably probably for the same reasons that you outlined there um but in in terms of uh, gaining weight uh, and cycling performance uh what what are for Jonas for example in terms of power improvement uh how yeah do, do you have quantitative data on like how how much his power improved or things like that um i've not got that data in front of me i do remember like the first probably six to 12 months was quite hard for him because his his body mass obviously went up quicker than his kind of uh, power numbers and his 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 performances on the bike and then psychologically it, it it took a lot of reassurance and work from the coach that things were going to improve but i think in that initial phase you're seeing your power to mass getting worse because your power isn't increasing really quick but your your weight is um so i think that can be quite challenging for for some individuals and especially you know if somebody is on a a short contract with a team and hasn't got they're quite insecure about things you can see why that would be really difficult to to manage um i think as well with with younger riders it's for me it's about i've said it lots of time but getting the work done you know building that engine um if you know if a rider was a certain weight at 20 and they lost six kilos that's not going to make them a, a tour de france winner just because they've they're the same weight as somebody who's won the tour de france they need to build that engine be robust you know um have that durability it's it's more than just oh, if i look like chris Froome or you know Jonas Fingergaard, then i'll win the tour de france <laughs> that it's it's understanding that it's the years and years of training and layering on that side of things that that enables somebody to to be a high performer not just the weight the weight is is part of it but it's not it's not the, the main part of it do you think that it's something that is um like a lot due to basically genetics like that a few riders have the ability to get to a certain 
like body composition and be really light and and uh and still have the power to be a tour de france winner but for a lot of riders it's just as you say it's you you have to work with the individual in front of you and their attributes and and their yeah what they are naturally suited to being and and it's just something that for for most riders is not possible to achieve no matter if they do all things right because of basic genetics or what's your take on that yeah i mean genetics has a massive massive uh, part to play there's that saying isn't like choose your parents wisely um so some riders will naturally be able to get get to you know a very lean or a, a desirable body composition for them without too much work. Other riders can get there, but it's a it's a lot of work and it, it it takes its toll. Other riders can get to the body composition, but then they're not able to to produce the the numbers needed at that body composition. And it's a it's a tricky one because some riders really need to push to find out where that set point is. Um, you know, I can say I can use my judgment and experience and work with the rider and say okay i think this is probably a good point that we aim for but riders will usually try and push past that and it's only then when the rider then realizes that they've gone too far um that then they actually say okay yeah you, you were right and maybe maybe this is a, a more sustainable achievable place to be um but understanding as well like the, the body composition and weight for performing at the tour de france isn't the same body composition and weight that somebody should be in March or January or December. Um, and I think that's something that, that people often get wrong as well, trying to do too much too soon. Some of our riders, you know, the more climbing riders we had in our squad, we had, you know, weight and skinfold targets that we were trying to get them to for the Tour de France. And we really stepped down. So even from the Dauphiné, the training camp they had after it, the Tour, we, we, we stepped it down from there. Whereas if they'd been at that weight in March, April, they might they might have thought great and they might have performed well in March and April, but they would have either got sick or they wouldn't have been able to hold it until until the Tour de France. So it's about understanding that as well, periodizing and peaking weight and body composition for exactly where it needs to, not not trying to be as skinny as possible in December and then spending all winter with inconsistent training because your your immune system's so stressed. And with those riders we did an after the tour put on a few kilos again to uh to basically strengthen the immune system and be able to uh to support training better again yeah and it happens naturally there's not like a, a big intervention that's needed for me i think mentally the leading you know to the to the tour de france and especially the guys on our team it was seven of the eight it was their first tour de france so mentally you know there's a big toll just preparing and being in the tour so i think just taking the foot off the off the gas for a few weeks afterwards i think people will naturally see a drift up in in weight and body composition and yeah it's not something we really need to to stress about we're quite lucky in our program that we don't have a world tour program yet so we we you know we had some riders who have to perform for worlds and then we have races now starting next week in september so it's it's not like we have to do the welter or or things like that so we can we can allow this kind of i like the, the weight and body composition to to peak and then drift up a little bit and then step back down again and same in the off season riders are often set targets for you know gaining weight in the off season to almost reset the system i think that's good from from a mental point of view um but also from a hormonal and longevity point of view um rather than trying to stay at race weight you know all year 
So it's something we actually like riders to to come to December camp, you know, within reason, um, heavier than, than when we saw them in October at our end of season camp. What would be an example of the the weight of a more climbing type rider in your team? Their weight in um, at the December training camp versus at the tour. Yeah, I mean it's all relative. So the the bigger guys will always see a a bigger absolute change um, percent percentage wise. It's you know probably between three and three and five percent. Typically, a climber might be yeah two two kilos heavier. Um, so it's not it's not a massive amount, but it, it it's usually enough. Um, and some riders will come back and they'll say, you know, I had two weeks, I just ate pizza and did what I wanted, and my weight yeah, drifted up two kilos. But then I started training, and it's maybe like a kilo, kilo and a half now above Tour de France weight. So it's it's not a huge amount, um, but I think yeah, having having some weight gain is is advantageous both mentally and physically. Mm. And you said that yeah. It w- with your climb, climbing type athletes, you do have those targets, but with athletes that have other roles that are um, more yeah, lead out people or breakaway uh, athletes or just domestiques in general, do they be, and that, do they have to do, do you have some targets for all of them for something like the tour, or are there a lot of athletes that they're basically fine with without having a big focus on uh, on what their weight is? Yeah, they will all have a target which has been devised between me and the rider. But for some, the the target doesn't need a lot of work to get to it. So somebody might be, you know, one or two kilos heavier in the classics. And then we say, okay, for the tour, it'd be better if we can get you to this point. And they will get there just from a good training block and a bit more focus around nutrition. Um, because those, you know, heavier guys, they still need to get over the mountain passes. They still need to finish the stage in the time cut um so we still need to kind of we 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 have to have some parameters but for them the big focus is on staying healthy being able to produce the high powers when they need need to um and and yeah that that side of things we have quite a wide range of of weights within our squad i think not in the tour de france squad but the whole squad i think our lightest ride is around 58 kilos and our um, at the bigger end, the time trial classics guys, you know, 85, 90 kilos. So it's a big difference um, because they're required to have different attributes for di- for different um, stages and different races. So I think it's important to have individual goals with that with that rider um, rather than say, okay, everybody needs to be. And within that t- within that squad, we have some of our bigger, more powerful um, classics guys actually have the lower. Uh, levels of body fat as well they just have a much more muscle mass and much more powerful um so again it's understanding that whole whole picture rather than just somebody w- jumping on the scales and saying you know this weight's good this weight's bad there's, there's much more to it than that yeah there's a bit of a tangent and we might come back to it a little bit but from a triathlon perspective i think that this is where a lot of people uh at least amateurs go go wrong is that they look at they look at Chris Froome or uh, Jonas Vingegaard as like the models for why they want to lose weight. Where when triathlon is is nothing like uh, like the tour, it's more like as you say the the classics or time trials and and to perform well at it, that kind of event actually 
having the muscle mass and uh, being able to produce the big power numbers is is what matters and and not the the power to weight per se which is yeah specific to like yeah those long climbs and and so on so so that's that's an interesting point that you make there with the differences within within your team yeah exactly and understanding the terrain where certain riders are expected to to perform um you know i've worked with a few triathletes and yeah weight they've been quite weight focused and it's it's like well what what you you know what's the course like that you're expected to perform on and and things like that and you know is weight the 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 key thing you should be focusing on for this obviously it's it it is important but you don't you know it's not the most important important thing um i guess things like you know aerodynamics and all those other things probably have a much bigger bigger role to play in health you know if if you're a, a kilo heavier but you're healthy and you're, you're you're banking all of the training that you need to then surely that's better than being two kilos lighter but missing more training surely just as a as a practical point so yeah um yeah there we had an episode uh, a month or so ago with uh, an aerodynamics expert and and he he's done some work with data from kona uh, so data that was available on strava for example and and using that to create correlations between bike performance in kona and and watts per cda which you could estimate from the data and watts per, per kg and uh, yeah there was there was no correlation between bike performance and, and watts per kg but the correlation between watts per cda is very strong so i think that to a large extent it also comes down to it's very very easy to measure watts per kilogram and we often like to think that the things that we can measure matter but they don't always matter and the things that are hard to measure we don't really think about because well they're hard to measure <laughs> so, exactly. so i think that that's um, from a triathlon perspective important to remember yeah um what is the psychology like in in the pro peloton these days around things like weight and and even body image and so on i mean you know i'm i don't sit in the pro peloton so i just hear things second and third hand but i think yeah obviously riders are still conscious of 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 body image you know they it's a very image conscious sport riders are you know wearing wearing lycra and other riders and coaches comment on on riders appearance and things like that so you know it is it is part of it within our team we, we try and manage things quite sensitively you know there's a history and tradition that, that, that coaches and masseurs will will comment or make make comments on riders taking things from the buffet or comment on how somebody's looking and we try where possible to to avoid you know those small comments because it can be just a small comment that somebody old school makes you know because it's been made for lots of times but then that can actually sit and play on the mind of 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 a rider um so it's something we try and you know manage quite quite sensitively um you know if if there's concerns with with a rider's um weight or body composition that maybe a coach might have that the the coach will will come to me and we will speak with the rider and see actually what you know what's going on do we need to work on something here and how can we manage that um in the right way because i think it's easy to to forget that 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 food um has a huge psychological component you know how people will eat certain things when they're when they're feeling low or you know they will use food as a as a crutch um people will use food as a, a control mechanism um so you know it needs to be handled really sensitively um all of that side of things we, we're really fortunate to have 
Hannah in our women's team as well. So she's responsible for our women's team riders and keeping that real healthy culture around body image um, and nutrition is is key because a quote that I've used in a few presentations from, from one of our young riders, he said, you know, at the end of the day, it's the fastest rider that wins. It's not the skinniest rider. And it really resonated with me that, that comment, you know, a rider might look great, but if they're not fast, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, so I think that's something we, we try and focus on a lot and understanding again, what, what, how the individual should, should look to perform at their best, you know, are they performing at their best? Are they healthy? Then body composition and body image should, should follow on the back of that. It shouldn't be the other thing that we're chasing. Is is it the same? Basically, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you, you're doing the same things in the in the women's team as well. But in your discussions with Hannah, like, does does it come up that do you think that basically it's the psycho the psychology is similar in in the women's team, or do you think that there are more or less um, concern around weight uh, on the women's side? Um, so I so I'm not actively working with those riders in a day to day setting. Um, but my impression from the outside looking in is is probably that there may be more sensitivity um in the in the women's riders i think when riders are coming from other teams to join our system they can often have a lot of preconceived ideas about about weight and body image from coaches or people in other teams that that have told them and when we've actually looked at data and got to work with the rider we've actually been able to you know put the spotlight on and say no actually we think this this would be a better better place for you you know you um and again understanding what kind of rider you are and what kind of terrain you need to perform on if you're a sprinter then it's more important that you're able to produce those high watts at the end of a hard race rather than maybe being two kilos lighter um but we still need to take into account that the rider needs to be able to be in those last 500 meters of a race. So we have to just find, find where that sweet spot is between health performance and, and body composition. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important that when, when the team announced it was setting up a women's team, I, I put my hand up and I said to Jens, our, our general manager, we really need a, a designated nutritionist for the women's team. Um, and he was great. He was kind of saying, yeah, you know, who do you think we should get? Can you write a job specification? What do you think we need? And that's been fundamental. Hannah was actually recruited to the team before we'd signed any riders, I think. Um, so we, we were able to have that system that operates. And I don't think it's always the case um, in all women's teams that they have that dedicated nutritionist. Quite often it's, yeah, they, they, they don't have the same provision that we have. And I think it's really important. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think what you say there about having that culture of, not having those comments even if they are not meant even if they're meant as jokes and not seriously but people at least some people will will take them seriously so it doesn't matter if they have all the knowledge in the world from somebody like you but if they then between one talk and the next hear three or four of those kinds of comments then probably that's what will resonate with them more than the actual logical uh arguments that you lay out for uh, like why why they what what works and what doesn't um so let me see here yeah one one question uh as well that i wanted to ask you is uh what is your approach to supplements and um yeah other uh organic aids yeah 
I would I would say I'm probably fairly fairly conservative, um, and I describe myself as a as a curious skeptic. So as a nutritionist, I'm bombarded with companies, products, uh, podcasts, riders telling me about other riders. Um, you know, new products that promise, promise this, promise that, whispers about, you know, what other teams are using in terms of supplements and ergogenic aids. And usually if something is too good to be true, you know, if it's if it sounds too good to be true, then it, it typically is. Um so with with our team, because I've come from from the British English Institute of Sports System, we have a very firm stance on kind of anti-doping and um contamination so every every product that we we use in the team has been through um like a batch testing um program we have batch testing certificates and serial numbers of every single product that's that's obtained by the team and that's given to our our riders because the my first thing is you know is it safe is the is this wonder product safe is it clear of contaminants? Is it does it contain exactly what it, it says? The second strand is then do, does it work? Does it does it work? Is there enough scientific um, evidence? Is there good enough studies done in populations that are maybe similar to to our populations? So, for example, nitrates are a, a supplement that gets gets a lot of traction and a lot of press, and there's a lot of really really good evidence around nitrates for different types of athletes. But when you look deep into the data and you're looking at athletes with VO2 max above 70, 65, 70, then it actually shows uh, a neutral and possibly detrimental effect on performance in endurance sports. So then it's then, well, yeah, it might work for somebody like me, you know, a recreational um, runner, then yeah, it probably does work. But for some, for the elite riders in our team with, you know, very high VO2 max, then it's probably not a strategy that, that I would look to use. So it's about understanding all of those things similar to our nutrition philosophy we start off with health so we we have supplements to support health and you know standard supplements that that most most sports nutritionists will advocate um a good quality omega-3 um a probiotic uh multivitamin just and we use that as a, an almost like an insurance policy because our riders do a lot of travel because they Sometimes we have have a chef, but other times we might not have a chef, so they're not always getting high quality nutrients when they're when they're on the road. So we use that as almost a um, yeah an insurance policy. We use um, prebiotic supplements as well, just to help support gut health. Again, in times times where riders aren't consuming much fruit and vegetables and fiber by design or by the fact that they're not they're just not able to obtain it through through the hotels and things are staying in. Um, and then some of the polyphenol supplements like um, New Zealand blackcurrant extract and um, tart cherry that can that can have influences on recovery, we use those as well. Vitamin D, um, there's tons Sorry, of evidence what are, about can that. You, can you explain the, the tart cherry and, uh, and the blackcurrant extract, uh, what is the purpose of, uh, of those supplements? Yeah, so... These are really concentrated amounts of a natural food. So the New Zealand blackcurrant extract is the same as eating, I think, 80 blackcurrants per capsule. So it's just the same as eating a lot of 
this particular type of black current. And the, the main reason we use it is to um, support the body's um, natural antioxidant defense to help with immunity um, and, you know, keeping making sure inflammation is, is a bit more controlled in a race and if we're on altitude camps those kind of settings same with the tart cherry so almost to reduce muscle soreness and promote recovery so we would use those in altitude blocks and um hard stage races or the classics times where the body's under a lot of a lot of stress and um, to just give the body a bit of extra support from from a food derived supplement really so that's that's why we use that there's a lot of good emerging research with the new zealand blackcurrant extract uh, data but that's the, the main main reason we use it vitamin d again yeah vitamin d is yeah um one of the most researched um supplements and again from the bone health point of view we find even with athletes that are living in girona and training down there because of sunscreen and clothing and things like that they can still often be suboptimal in vitamin d so we we test and we we adjust vitamin d throughout the year and then buffers um like beta alanine and sodium bicarbonate we use those with with certain riders in certain times of the year so everything there we would say is is safe it's um evidenced and we would use it for certain times for certain periods but again it's all done on an individual basis and with the athlete at the center. So athletes might say, yeah, I don't agree with that. I'm not going to take that supplement. And it's always got to be the athlete's choice um, as, as to what they're taking and ingesting in their body. So some, some athletes don't take any supplements. Some, some take, yeah, the full kind of range of supplements we use. Um, but we always try and emphasize that the supplements we provide in the team have been tested and are safe and, and riders are advised not to take any supplements outside what, what the team have provided. What about caffeine? Is that something you use? Yeah, I mean, it's a supplement and an ergogenic aid, but it's used so widely in, in cycling and society that, um, yeah, it's um, it's almost one of the ones I, I forget, but we do use caffeine. Um, we try and, again, periodize it and use it strategically because you may get a performance boost from using caffeine but then there's usually a trade-off with sleep and recovery so we try and get riders to think about the days in a stage race where they need to perform and days when they need to perform but they they don't need to be at their kind of 100 for, for that stage it's more important that they've recovered well for the next day so we try and get them to think in those terms but all riders drink drink coffee um so we try and factor that in when we're talking about caffeine and using caffeine gum or caffeine gels and things like that so i think last time i checked at least the the typical research uh would have you take three to six milligrams per kilo body weight usually an hour before uh the race so uh is that similar to what you do of course maybe the coffee might be a bit earlier with with breakfast um but but would you shoot for those numbers and would you be more at the lower end or at the higher end and, and how would you factor in maybe even caffeine gels throughout a longer stage or something like that yeah so my stance on caffeine is more isn't always better in in cycling it's usually if you know 100 milligrams is good then 300 milligrams must be really good And it, it's always about trying to get the 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 biggest, you know, 
performance gain, but for the, the lowest dose and the lowest side effects. So I would always start around the three milligrams per kilogram end of things because I've had riders in the past that, that have gone too high and they, they've had cramps, they've had, um, you know, strange sensations in their legs. They've, you know, it's just been too much. They've not been able to concentrate. Um, and then they've really suffered with with sleep and recovery afterwards. So it's almost trying to find out what's the lowest we can get away with and, and, and get a boost rather than what, what's the highest. And then the thing I always work back to is with our education with riders is caffeine stays in the system for a, for a really long time. You know, if somebody has a caffeine gel or a, a caffeine chewing gum, five hours later, that caffeine's going to be at half its concentration. So it has a really long ergogenic window. 10, 12 hours later, it's going to be leaving the system. So it's almost, we always talk about, you know, not leaving it too late within a race to take take caffeine because depending, its peak is usually around 45 minutes when it when its peak action is, and then it will gradually step down. But it's not like you have an instant boost from caffeine and then it wears off 15 minutes later. It's understanding that it'll start working after around 15 minutes. It will peak around 45 to 60 minutes, and then it will it will gradually reduce, um, you know, to half concentration by five hours. So we try and work back where if somebody wants the, the peak concentration, then to take the caffeine, you know, 45, 60 minutes before, before the lead into that section of the race. But if somebody needs to be really active in the breakaway or in the first part of the race, they might even have caffeine pre-race, you know, caffeine chewing gum and, and things like that. So that's that's kind of our approach to it. Yeah. And the final one that I want to ask your opinion on is uh, ketones. Uh, is this something that you're, you or some of your riders are using? No, we, we don't use it. Um, yeah, I, I even, you know, I've had to do like a policy about what ketones are, the proposed mechanisms, um, why we don't use them um as a like a position stand within the team the the there's a there's a few reasons but for me as a as a, a substrate I, I i'm not convinced of the of the data um that it, it can improve performance as an energy source there's some small data that it may have some small effects in recovery um but again the studies you could pick holes in some of those studies there's some new research coming out around its use in um, altitude, um, alongside altitude, um, relating to EPO production. But again, the research isn't quite strong enough um, for me to say, yeah, let's let's be using it. Um, and the cost as well, you know, the, it's very expensive for for what you get. But I'm astounded by, you know, how many athletes use use ketones, but their carbohydrate intakes are suboptimal. We've got like 120 years of research around carbohydrate metabolism carbohydrate performance riders are not getting and triathletes as well not optimizing their just general diet and carbohydrate but they're, they're using ketones like for fun I, I it just yeah i can't understand it so again i'm you know i'm curious and i'm skeptic and every time there's a new paper and i speak with people but for me at the moment there's there's not enough evidence um to recommend their use um Yeah, that's my dance. 
Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now maybe uh, a hypothetical question again. But uh, yeah, if you were working with professional triathletes instead of professional cyclists, what aspects of uh, your work and your recommendations do you think would be would be different, and uh, or what specific considerations would you have to make for the change in sport compared to cycling? Yeah, I mean, I guess I have worked with some triathletes and some runners and i guess that the thing that would first spring to mind is the gut is probably under more stress than than on a bike um you know from the from the mechanical jostling of of running um from swimming so i think that side of things and the ability to take on fuel on the run um and th- yeah those kind of things i would i would probably and from my understanding triathletes do seem to have more gut issues um so that's probably something i would be looking at more whereas cyclists are able to consume quite a lot of carbohydrate on the move without too much difficulty um, because they're in quite a stable stable position and um a little bit like when i've worked with mountain bikers you know the the, the digestive system is just you know being bounced around a heck of a lot um, and that that creates big changes um and I guess as well, just the, the conditions that, that some of the elite triathlons are in and they're much more steady state, you know, in the, in the, in the hot weather. So I think I would probably think the, the heat preparation is, is really important. Um, you're not getting kind of any cooling on descents and things or as much cooling on descents, you know, on those long, um, really hot, um, long distance triathlons. And like we spoke about before, um, about um weight and cda and aerodynamics and all things like that you know getting to understand body composition for that an individual athlete you know is it the most important thing they should be focusing on or should they be focusing on all of the other things optimizing their nutrition around training and competition and then body composition falling into a natural natural place where it where it needs to be rather than chasing a optimal body composition that they've they've derived from somewhere when you were talking before it reminded me of when i worked on the track and i spoke with one of the aerodynamic experts there about yeah weight and track performance and cda and they were almost saying you know if the rider lost five or ten kilos it might have some impact but you know two one two kilos it's not going to really have any any impact on on those kind of numbers um so yeah They'd be the things I'd be thinking about. Yeah, um, preparing for the potential, yeah, the stress of the gut on the run, and and also for the heat stress. How specifically would you do that? Is it about a gradually gradual progression of taking on nutrition uh, over the course of run training and and training in hot conditions, uh, or is there anything else to that? Yeah, a mixture, and then thinking about the the 24 hours before before racing as well and and you know making sure we're limiting any any irritants on the gut that we're doing some of the things that we would do before a a mountain stage um you know to really reduce high fiber food so there's not lots of residual things left left in the gut that we're avoiding um really high high fat foods, uh, red meat, spicy foods, anything that's going to cause extra stress and irritate the gut when it's going to be under a lot of, lot of heat stress. Um, 
those those kind of things I'd be I would be thinking about. Um, and then you know hydration, but obviously practicing some of these nutritional strategies in the heat. Um, I think it's you see a lot of athletes training in Northern Europe, and then they go and do a super hot marathon or a super hot triathlon, and they've not actually practiced fueling and hydrating in those situations and it's com- completely different the body will you know use the the food and fluid completely differently and how much can be absorbed and all of those kind of things yeah yeah you mentioned so is it the day before that you would uh, focus specifically on av- avoiding all the irritants or would you go for a triathlon of course for a stage race you can only really focus on like one day to the next but but if you're doing a triathlon you're maybe especially if you're an amateur and you're doing a, a few long distance triathlons a year but let's say you're a professional even you might do one one race a month for the racing season so you have time to let's say take two days or even three days if you want to of avoiding all irritants and uh, yeah what what would the window be there that you would recommend yeah i would probably do two days as a maximum it's quite tricky because i would only load so i would only glycogen load for the 24 hours before competition but if you're reducing fiber and vegetables and things like that, but then you're also reducing, you're not having lots of carbohydrate in that day, right? Athletes can feel quite hungry um, and sluggish. If, if So it's a, it's a bit of a balance, but I would probably be scaling back the, the irritant foods like 36, 48 hours before, and then 24 hours out, then I would do that, that glycogen loading program, similar to what we would do for like a, a big one day classic or a, a mountain stage. So you, you're wanting to maximize the amount of uh, glycogen that's that's loaded in the muscle, but minimize the amount of weight that's left in the in the gut. All right, yeah. And uh, then if we talk about the potential differences between professionals, so which is mainly what we've been talking about today, and amateurs in how they should approach things like nutrition, weight, etc what are the things that you would point out there are there many differences or is it more or less the same but just scaling obviously for the uh, the workload in training and in races yeah i mean if anything i think the life of a um, committed amateur triathlete is probably harder than the life of a professional athlete because they have all of the other responsibilities like you know a job <laughs> to, to deal with and and the family people forget that these guys who are doing, you know, 30, 35 hours of training per week, that is their job. <laughs> so I see, you know, I've worked with, you know, amateur Ironman triathletes and they're, they're trying to do the same type of training, but they've got all of this additional life stress as well, um, sleep, all of those other things. So I think I think you need to factor, factor that in sometimes that maybe the amount of training or how hard they train can can sometimes be be adjusted which yeah you know better than i do um but yeah focusing on on those kind of things i think as well when time is 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 tighter than we spoke about a little bit but some for some of the lower intensity sessions using um low carbohydrate or like low glycogen for some low sessions might actually enable somebody to get more bang bang for the buck you know somebody who's training six eight hours a week can then maybe get a slightly bigger adaptation from that that lower intensity session that they're doing um but they're not if they've then got to go straight to work and 
Um, they've had a poor night's sleep because they've been up with their their baby and all all of those other things together. Um, but I would say, you know, thinking about the the biggest bang for the buck again, staying healthy, coping with the training, not using training to to um, as a means to lose weight, get getting getting all of the the ducks in a row, um, and not kind of underfueling training all of the time because then training quality will will suffer, um, and just being being planned, being organised with with cooking and and all of those practical things, which are quite easy to overlook as an amateur. It's easy to buy a new shoe or new equipment um, rather than do some do some batch cooking and have a load of meals that are ready to go in your freezer and fridge, so that you know after training, I've got this got this meal ready to go. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that that's all good. So so when you when you are working with amateur athletes, when are there any common trends that you see, especially in the in the beginning, that these are some typical let's say easy wins that you can get for them uh, or common mistakes that uh, that you would can flag to help others uh, avoid them yeah the big thing i i always see is too much over focus on the pre-race breakfast it's 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 like they won't have thought about nutrition apart from the pre-race breakfast and typically they will have too much volume too much fiber so then then they they feel too full and bloated and they've not actually had sufficient carbohydrate in the 24 hours prior whereas i always see breakfast if we've loaded our muscle glycogen in the 24 hours before then pre-race breakfast is just to top up the the liver glycogen stores so it doesn't need to be a massive you know huge bowl of porridge like the three bears would eat and you know uh, you know just eating too much at those times um and then not practicing race day nutrition not not practicing you know not knowing that at this leg of the bike i'm going to eat this amount and on the run i'm going to eat this at these time points and being able to adjust it actually if it's if it's not working so i think part of your training should be training the legs but it should also be training training your stomach training the, the mechanics of being able to to take a gel or a drink when you're breathing quite hard i think practicing those things is is crucial and trialing your pre-race breakfast trialing waking up at the time you're probably going to have to wake up for a competition and seeing how it feels to eat that that breakfast it might be fine to eat that breakfast at 8 a.m and you're training at 10 but if you've got to eat it at 5 a.m then it might be completely different and you you, you might be better having something something yeah completely different yeah uh for those listeners that are interested you mentioned tim podlogar earlier and we had quite a detailed discussion about what you said there with how the breakfast is um yeah for or a lot large part of its role there is restoring the liver glycogen and, and the muscle glycogen it comes from the carbohydrate loading uh, earlier on so i'll link to that in the show notes so listeners can uh check that out as well but uh, yeah, I think we covered everything. Uh, is there anything else on the nutrition side that you want to talk about before we move into the rapid fire questions or are you happy with uh, what we covered? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can probably tell from from speaking to me, my big philosophy is to try and keep things simple. Um, I always think it's my job to think about nutrition all of the time, think about new things, think about novel things, be a point of reference. It's the bike rider's job to do the training that's prescribed and perform in races. So when I come to nutrition for riders and athletes that I'm working with, I'm trying to think of 
what's the best way of making it simple, easy to to digest, and then they can move on from it. So it's, it just becomes part of their practice. They shouldn't need to think about nutrition all of the time like I do. It should just be part of their part of their day to day day to day practice, so they can focus on the training and racing, which is which is what they get paid for. And that's kind of how I how I come to things. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, let's move on to the rapid fire questions. Take one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what is your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? So I'll give you two. I'll give you a textbook, um, which is uh, Sports Nutrition by Gleason and Yukendrup. That's a real big volume textbook. Um, and a book I've just read um, by Crawley called Out of Thin Air. And it's about uh, runners in Ethiopia. And it's more around the sociology and how they live and their beliefs. Um, so yeah, two two different books. Yeah, I had uh, Crawley on as a guest on this podcast talking about that as well. And that was really fascinating. I read that book and really liked it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally or personally? I think for me, it's just to, to get it done. Um, get it done early get it out of the way um i think if you leave things whether that training or some work that you don't want to do to later in the day it, it doesn't happen and if it does happen it's of poor quality if you just get out get it done then yeah that that helps me athletically and professionally and uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you there's a lot of people um with within uno x um our head coach espen ashgold is um a real good guy he questions things he challenges perceptions and reads a lot and he's somebody who yeah inspires me to think and look at look at things differently all of the time so he's he's a good guy he's somebody you should get on this program I'll, I'll i'll do that i'll write down his name and and try to reach out to him um yeah and finally uh james where do you I, I know actually that's how we connected on on twitter you have you've been posting some really interesting stuff especially during the tour that i was following uh you posting some some nutrition uh, tidbits from your team's work well is twitter do you have instagram or other places where people can follow you and your work yeah twitter's probably the the, the place i use mostly for yeah professional seeing what's going on and, and sharing sharing insights that's probably the best place i think my handle is james ep moran i think that's but i'm not massively active on social media um, i use it more as a as a research tool rather than a, a promotion tool yeah all right well thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you hope to uh, do it again another time and good luck uh, to uno x for the rest of the season thank you and thanks for the conversation it's good fun I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com, including links to related episodes. I will also link to the Nutrition Category Archive, which is a page where you can find all past episodes of the podcast that have been tagged as nutrition. So if this is a topic that you want to learn more about, then don't forget to look for past episodes that you might not have listened to yet by going to that particular archive. And uh, I might remind everybody that uh, on the episode show notes page on, on scientifictriathlon.com you can also use this kind of archiving function or category function i should say so that you can click through to uh, see a list of episodes of a particular category and that way you can filter through content that you want to learn more about Next Monday, I interview Austrian national team cycling coach Stefan Selkner in a classic training talk format, so stay tuned for that. 
And for the next little while, I will be promoting the Mallorca training camp here at the end of the episodes. Uh, and I really do hope to see a lot of uh, podcast listeners there in April. We always have an amazing time, superb training and a really great camaraderie amongst the group with uh, athletes coming in from all around the world, getting to know each other, uh, sharing uh, the great cycling roads and the great views. And some of our past camps have actually resulted in long-lasting friendships between people that uh, didn't know each other before the camp. So uh, that's always really nice to see. Another great thing that we have going for our camp is that we do it in collaboration with Frank and Kaisa Jakobsen. And Frank is uh, a coach who has worked with athletes like Craig Alexander. You can actually listen to Frank on multiple past appearances on that triathlon show. Just search for his name on scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, but his expertise and experience is definitely something to tap into with uh, with the, uh, the resume that he has. And if you're interested, uh, you can check out the webpage for the camp on scientifictriathlon.com and follow the instructions there to register or email me directly on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. If you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products, I would highly recommend trying them out. You can use their free fuel and hydration planner or even a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy. And don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS23. And thank you to Form that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS23. 15 to get 15% off the form smart swim goggles. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.